Thank you, Lauren, for reading that passage for us. And just before we get into our sermon for today, how about if we open with a word of prayer? Dear Father, we thank you so much that we can have this freedom where we can worship you and we can worship you also by listening to your word. May through your spirit that you make our hearts desire and love and treasure your word. And may our hearts be rooted in the truth that you have revealed to us. So Father, may your spirit today make us see the glories and beauties of Christ that our eyes will be taken off from us and our eyes will be so captivated by the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I pray all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, it's good to be back here. Uh, we are still in the Gospel of John series where, we're be, where we've been talking about the life of Jesus, right? And so far, we've been witnessing Jesus' ministry in public. And last week, if we remember correctly, we learned how no matter how many or great the miracles Jesus performed in public, people still reject him to the point of looking to arrest and kill him because he claims to be God and to be sent by God. And we know that they reject them not because of the lack of miracles, but because of their hearts that are unable to believe in him. So now we are entering into a section in our text in the Gospel of John where Jesus retreats from his public ministry and goes into a time where he spends his time only with his disciples. And if we go straight to our text, to verse 1, it gives us, it sets up the context through which we should understand the rest of our passage. So if you look at verse 1 with me, the scene is situated before the Feast of the Passover. And if we remember the Feast of the Passover, it is the annual Jewish feast that commemorates the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. It's a big annual feast that is, that is about to happen. And then after that, we see that Jesus knew that his hour had come. And this hour is also something that we've been talking about for the past two, three weeks. What is the hour? The hour is referring to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The hour is no longer coming, but the hour has come. What does this mean, friends? This means that Jesus is about to leave his own people to themselves here on earth. Because he is about to depart out of this world to the Father. So this is what biblical theologians call this section as the farewell discourse. Why is it called the farewell discourse? It is because Jesus is teaching his final lessons to his disciples while bidding farewell to his disciples as he is about to leave them and go to the cross and go to the Father. And it is worth noting for us that everything that happens from chapters 13 to 17 are only a few hours away from the arrest of Jesus. We see the arrest of Jesus in John 18, and John 19, we see the crucifixion event of Jesus. So the hour is really close. The death is near. The pressure is on for Jesus. And now with his very few hours left remaining before he's going to be arrested by the Roman guards, Jesus focuses on this time where he is preparing his disciples to continue his ministry here on earth. So John chapter 13 is talking about Jesus preparing his disciples by purifying them. 
And in we, we will see in verses 1 to 20, the text for today, that Jesus will purify his disciples by way of a literal and symbolic washing, which is through foot washing. And in the next week's text, John 13, verses 18 to 30, we will see how Jesus purifies his disciples by way of figurative washing, which is through the removal of the betrayer. So today, our text will not focus much on the removal of the betrayer, but our focus will focus more on how Jesus purifies his own through the foot washing event. So before we get into our sermon outline, it's crucial to remember that we too are Jesus' disciples. And what then are the marks of God's people in this world through what we see from this text? So let us go to our three points. First, a people under a king who rules, a people under a king who loves, and a people under a king who sends. Let us go to our first point, a people under a king who rules. Friends, although this may be hard to see, John is establishing in this story that Jesus is king. And so far in the Gospel of John, we know that John emphasizes the divinity of Jesus or his identity as the Son of God. And this will be particularly significant later as the story unfolds and what he is going to do to his disciples. But look with me to verse 2. What does it say there? During supper is the setting of the the, the, the meal that connotates how this is a feast. And who normally is the host of the feast? Kings are, right? And then we move on to see in verse 3 that the Father had given all things into his hands. What is this all things that are given to Jesus' hands? It is the authority to judge the world and to give eternal life to whomever he wills. Who normally have this kind of power to judge with so high of an authority? Kings do. And in verse 3, we also see that John is trying to make us see that Jesus had come from God and was going back to God. What is this talking about? This is talking about the origins of Jesus. That Jesus is the Word in the beginning, the Word who was with God and the Word who was God. That all things were made through Him. And he is the embodiment of the glory of God itself. See the high standing that Jesus has. And this is what John wants us to see in this passage before we look at how Jesus relates with his disciples. But here's the problem, friends. As Jesus is establishing himself as king in the scene, the disciples have not yet understood the kingship of Jesus. He does not they have not yet understood what Jesus is about, the mission of the king. And with that in context, this becomes the main focus of our text today, for Jesus to make sure that their disciples truly see what his kingship is about and to also capture the hearts of his disciples to see the king's heart and the king's mission to the world. And he is not going to do it by putting fear in their hearts. And he's not going to do it by trying to manipulate them by giving rewards if they can do what the king says. But he is going to do it by demonstrating his love for them. Look again with me to verse 1. 
when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice the love of Jesus to his disciples, the love of a king towards his people. But this is what's striking in our text. Because immediately after that, John the author wants us to see something in verse 2. Who enters the scene? It says, during during supper, when the devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. There is the devil in the midst of this very intimate supper between Jesus and his people. Who is the devil? He is the true enemy of the king. So what is John trying to do by setting, making us see this in the beginning? John seems to be setting up the scene where Jesus' kingship is truly revealed and will be revealed by how he is going to defeat the enemy. And how he is going to defeat the enemy will utterly put the disciples in shock. Just so that we can be situated in the story, I think this will be helpful, right? Think about superhero movies. Think Avengers, right? And I think it's fair to say that good superhero movies, or at least the ones I like, have an epic final battle between the superhero and the villain, especially at the end of the movie. And what makes this final battle epic? One, if the superhero doesn't defeat the villain, we know that it will be the end of the world for the good people. And for two, it makes it epic because the superhero loves the good people so much that the superhero finally unleashes his true powers and his greatest powers to defeat the villain and to save the people. And we all look forward to this time in this movie where we will see the true powers of the superhero that he will unleash against his enemy. That suspense is quite similar to what's going on in this text. With anticipation, we're asking ourselves, how is this loving king going to defeat his enemy to protect his people? Well, we're about to see as how this story is going to unfold, how the king is going to reveal his greatest, most powerful strength to defeat the enemy that lies in the midst of him and his people. Let us go to our next point. A people under a king who loves. So how does Jesus show his greatest powers in order for him to show his love to his own people who are in the world? Look with me to verse 4, and I'll read from verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. If this were to be a superhero movie, are you going to bring your kids and watch that? We say to ourselves, we were expecting a great epic battle. But what we got was the superhero washing feet, including his enemy's feet. 
I'm sure your kids will be left utterly disappointed and we will be left asking, where is the epic battle we're longing to see? All I see is comedy. If you're a disciple during the time of Jesus, you would be naturally asking the question they're asking back then. Why is he washing my feet? Not only is he washing feet, but if you pay attention to the details that John provides for us, he took off his outer garments, he tied a towel around his waist. What makes this very significant? This is what slaves normally wear. Is he truly king? And you think to yourselves, nobody forced him to do this. In verse 3, he knew full well that he is the son of God. He knew that he had the authority from God to judge his enemy with all the divine powers at his disposal. And yet, this is supposed to be how the all-powerful king would defeat the enemy because he says that he loves his people so much. Friends, in reality, we all have this deep question all the time. We're asking the same questions the disciples are asking in this scene. Have we ever thought or felt that if God is an all-powerful king and he is also so loving to his people, why would God let my businesses be stagnant? Why would God let me be sick? Or my loved ones go through a very painful illness. Or perhaps we're asking ourselves, why would God have let my loved one die too soon? Why didn't God restore my broken family? Why didn't God make me more attractive in my looks? Or to the most basic level, you find asking yourself, why did God make me like this? And we know that deep in our hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, we feel like we are, we are always on a quest to find ways that we can feel so loved and so secure. And we go to things like career success, people's affections, like our boyfriends, our girlfriends, our spouses, our children, to find that feeling of being so loved and so secure in life. Like us, this is what the disciples are not understanding yet. They have not yet understood that the only way to find that love so secure, they need to be washed clean. And not only the need of having to be washed clean, but to be washed clean by the king's own blood. So as we look at how the story unfolds, Look at what is causing the disciples through Peter, what is causing them to not be able to see this love of the king. Look at Peter's dialogue with Jesus in verses 6 to 8. Peter said this, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus' response is very crucial and very central to how we understand the Christian gospel. Jesus answered Peter, Peter, if I do not wash you, 
you have no share with me. Why is Peter so offended when the king shows him his love by washing his feet? It is because Peter had different expectation, expectations of what Jesus' kingship is about. Peter knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Peter believes that only in Jesus is there eternal life. But what Peter has yet to understand is that there is a price that needs to be paid in order for him to be included in God's kingdom. And that's why when Jesus came to him wanting to wash his feet, he stops Jesus from washing his feet. All this time, if we know the person of Peter, right? Peter thinks flattering Jesus with his religious actions and words is what will give him that love so secure. In Luke 24, 20, 22, 24, Luke is very helpful in giving us an insight into what's going on in this text, which is kind of like the parallel passage, arguably, of the same event we're studying today. Luke notes that during the supper, there is a dispute among the disciples. This dispute is centered upon this question, which among the disciples is regarded as the greatest disciple? And if we know the kind of Peter he is, right? He is always the most competitive guy who wants to get that title, the best and greatest disciple of Jesus. And he does so by trying his best to please Jesus by saying and doing things that can make him stand out from the rest of the disciples. Remember when he wants to be seen as the man of faith when he stepped out of the boat to walk on water while the other disciples are scared in the boat? Remember when he chops the ear of the Roman soldier when Jesus is being arrested while the other disciples do nothing? And perhaps this is what we're seeing in this text too. What he's doing here is trying to make himself look like he is the religious one. That he is more religious, more holy, more righteous than all the other disciples who is sitting at the table with Jesus. Hence he says, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. What sounds so religious, so humble, is actually the very opposite of how Jesus will later define true religion and true gospel love. Peter gets it upside down, you see. He thinks religion is about winning the heart of Jesus the King by flattering him with what he can do and what he can offer to the kingdom of God. He thinks that the more he goes up, the more the king is going to reward him. And Peter again is utterly shocked with the words of Jesus. And you can see his utter shock, his utter amazement when he responds frantically in verse 9. After Jesus said, Peter, you have no share with me if I do not wash you. Peter responds by saying, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. It doesn't register to his human mind how a king needs to wash his dirtiest part of his body in order for him to be with the king. Friends, what is Peter's problem here? That becomes the natural and the most fundamental problem of the human heart. The problem of self-absorption. How is Peter being so absorbed by himself? Number one, he first assumes 
right? He assumes that Jesus' kingship is about who can be the greatest. Secondly, he thinks he is the greatest disciple through his sacrifices. He is very confident in it. And third, he is actually more concerned about himself, his reputation, more so than the king and the king's mission. Friends, this is our problem as well. This is not only Peter's problem. This is the problem of the human heart. And some of us here, if we're honest, we go to church just because you're concerned about you, your reputation, more than anything else. You think that going to church, you think that being a Christian can somehow make God love you more. And if God loves you more, He can protect you from a potential bad calamity or misfortune. You think that giving to church can make God happy and proud. And if He is happy and proud, you think that He can bless your businesses more. Or how about this? Church and being a Christian becomes a place where we flatter people and wanting to be flattered by people. We are too self-absorbed by ourselves that Sunday worship like this becomes more about me, more about us, more so than about the king deserving of all our worship. This is close to my heart as well, friends. I struggle with my need to feel significant and be known by people through what I can do in my contributions to the church. And we know that deep in our hearts, we long for this significance. We long for this sense of security where you feel like people acknowledge you for who you are. And sometimes the greatest fear in this life is not death itself, but the greatest fear in this life is when nobody acknowledges you. Friends, if we think that this whole church thing, this whole Christian religion is about presenting our sacrifices for God out of our fear that He will punish us if we disobey, out of the fear that my life can go wrong if I don't try to please and flatter this God who claims to be the creator of this world, if that is how we think church is or what Christian religion is, we will never understand why Jesus, the King of Kings, had to wash his people's feet. We will never understand why Jesus will have to wash your feet. Something that the King knows and something that we're always blinded with from is the knowledge of who the true enemy is. And this is what needs to be dealt with. And before he is going to leave his disciples, Jesus makes sure that his disciples know the true enemy of God's kingdom. And that is not the fear of being not known by the world. It is not the fear of being poor. But the true enemy of God's kingdom if our, is our state of sin before God. Our stains of guilt and our state that we are born with a heart so polluted by the loves of this world that we'll never be able to satisfy our longings and our true desires. And the king not only knows 
But the king loves his own so much that he is willing to expose us of our true sinful state before him by stooping down, by condescending to become one like us in order that he may defeat the power of sin, the power of his enemy. What then does his disciples fundamentally need that Peter is not seeing? Our need for spiritual cleansing. That is what every single human here needs. Spiritual cleansing. In order for us to find the fulfillment of our true desires of our hearts. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Like David, we cry, Have mercy on me, O God! Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. David gets it. That what he primarily needs is for God to wash him clean from his iniquity. His love and his desire to be known his desire to have somebody so beautiful to love him, he knows that these things never will, never can satisfy what he truly longs for. And he finally realizes it. Hence his cry. That is the dangerous irony of self-absorption, friends. The more absorbed we are to ourselves, the more blinded we are from the reality of our true state before God. Like Peter here, he is so blinded from the fact that he is a sinner in need of God's cleansing wash. It is like the warning from Proverbs 30.12 that there are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. And so if the context of our passage again is about Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure away from them and to the Father, Jesus here focuses on reminding his disciples that only he can do that cleansing. Only Jesus can cleanse away our guilty stains. And only through his blood that we can find and we can find the fulfillment of our true desires of our hearts. Look at the striking parallel of Jesus' foot-washing scene with Philippians 2. Paul says, Though Christ was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. What was shed on the cross, friends? His perfect and precious blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Knowing that this is the main focus of Jesus in this text, right? The two marks of the identity of the people of God under a king of under a king who loves, is that number one, God's people are forgiven people. The 
foot washing points to our state of being so guilty before God, and it points to our new state of being declared righteous by God because Christ has taken the punishment of our sins unto himself on the cross. Paul says it in Romans 5, that therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our Lord Jesus Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The foot washing makes us see our need for a washing that atones for our sins. Secondly, and equally as important as what we said in our statement of faith today, because Christ has washed our sins away, God's people are sanctified people. It points to our state of being dead in our sins, and it points to how God has made us alive in Christ. Now that we are made alive in Christ, the Spirit of God washes us from the sins contracted through the daily life in this world. Christians are those who still struggle with sins today. Although we stand righteous, holy before Him with the righteousness of Christ. And this is what is a little bit confusing in our text in verse 10. Because Jesus says that the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But, is, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. How can Peter be already completely clean before the washing of his feet, right? That's the question, the natural question, if we are sensitive to the text before us. And John talks about his body having been bathed. That can refer to our once-for-all cleansing, the atoning cleansing work of Christ. And so it logically follows that the foot washing is applied to our daily growth in our sanctification. Calvin says that the feet is a metaphor for all the passions and cares by which we are brought in contact with the world. Different than the purification of justification that is once for all, after we're brought into union with Christ, this purification of sanctification is one that is continual and daily. This means that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, is doing His work of cleansing us from our loves of the world daily. And this is what Christ is preparing His disciples that after He is going to the Father, the Spirit is going to be sent on them to continue to do the work of this cleansing in the hearts of God's people. So we are not only forgiven people, but the foot washing here makes us see that God's people are sanctified people. Friends, behold the king who not only rules with power and authority, but who rules with love and mercy toward his chosen people in this world by shedding his own blood to erase our sins away. But how do we know if we've been washed? Let us go to our last point. A community under a king who sends. We know that we have been truly washed by the blood of Christ, if we find delight in the mission of the king. What do I mean by that? As Jesus is preparing his disciples to continue his mission in the world, because the hour to go to the cross has come, 
we see that Jesus is preparing them by also making them see the mission of Jesus all this while. Follow me from verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Friends, the people of God, the church, we are sent to wash one another's And we all know that this does not mean it's a literal washing of feet, but it means that we are called to have the same mind of Christ in our relationships with the people in the church and the people outside of the church. If truly we've tasted the love of Christ. Paul exhorts us this way in the same passage preceding the passage in Philippians that we just read a few minutes earlier. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is saying here that if you've truly tasted comfort from the love of Christ, if you've truly tasted the sweetness of freedom that comes from the fact that you have been fully cleansed from your sins by His blood, the mind of Christ is one that joyously seeks to go low in humility. Just like how in our story, Jesus joyously goes low to wash sinners' Here then is the test of whether we've been truly been cleansed and washed by His blood. If truly we understand the heart of the King, is humility a burden or a joy for us? Is counting others more significant than yourselves, looking to the interests of others more than your own interests, are these things a burden or a joy for God's people? And we all know that humility is tricky, friends. We're tempted to respond to verses like these by saying, okay, from today, I want to be more humble. I want to grow in humility. But if that is kind of like the message that you go out here today, you've missed completely the whole point of the text. Why? Because the ability to be humble and your efforts to be humble is still about you. It's still about you being humble. How you can so prove yourself to be the humble person that Jesus commands us here to do. The point of true humility is that it is rooted in the gospel. And for it to be rooted in the gospel, true humility is self-forgetfulness. Be careful, friends. Those who are truly humble do not even realize that they are humble. Because true gospel humility takes the attention away from you and puts it all on Christ. 
Christ and what Christ has done for you. The only way that we can grow in humility is to be more consumed by the humble love of Christ that he has showed us. Friends, I know that our biggest fear here, here about humility is the fear of letting people take advantage of you. Friends, this is not true. Humility does not mean that people take advantage of you. It does not mean that the world can take advantage of the church who is so fixated on this mission of showing the love of Christ to the world. Gospel humility is not emptying ourselves, but it is to be so filled with Christ, to be so secure in our identity and standing before God. And at the last verse of our text, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. What is Jesus saying here? If you are truly in Christ, if Christ has truly washed you clean, we are received by the God of this universe. We hold to that high same standing in Christ. And in the same way that Jesus was so secure in his identity as the Son of God and so loved by God the Father, he humbled himself so low. And in the same way that we being so secure in our high standing with God, we are now free to go low in humility. Here is then the power through which we can delight in going low in humility. In a world that preaches to us, go and make a name for yourself. And this should be what makes the church unique in this world. And this should be what the church is so focused on in its mission to spread the love of Christ in this world. Look again to Philippians 2, where Paul reveals the true power through which we can delight in humility. It is to behold Christ who has put us to be in the highest standing with God at the expense of his position. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with a God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, tied a towel around him, becoming a slave to us. It is to behold Christ who made us perfectly clean at the expense of his blood. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet. And third, it is to behold the fact that we will be united with God and stand with him in glory when he returns to find us and to return to be united with us. Therefore, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? 
Behold the love of a king so deep that goes lowest to the depths of our sins. Behold Christ. Be so consumed by Christ. And by doing so, without us realizing it, we'll begin to grow in self-forgetfulness. And we begin to taste and experience the true freedom, the true joy, the true satisfaction that our hearts have been looking so intently elsewhere in this world that can only be found in Christ's humble love. Friends, behold what our King has done for us. The power of sin has been defeated by the power of the cross. Behold Christ our King who rules with His love to His church whom He has bought with His own precious blood. Let us pray. Dear Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your blood that has washed away our sins away. So complete. Our guilty stains are erased. We stand righteous before You. Not only that, Father, we thank You for Your Spirit that cleanses us daily from the loves of the world that so easily tempt us and so easily fool us by thinking that we can find our true satisfaction, true joy in what the world can give us. Father, today, I pray that You would make Christ so beautiful and glorious in our hearts that our hearts are so captivated by Christ that everything we do may be a way to reveal what He has done for us. And that is to go low in His humble love to save and redeem wretched sinners like us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.